Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, we are in a series in Genesis, and today we're going to talk about the creation of man, part one. In Genesis 2, I want to begin by reading and then move immediately to the message. Genesis chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Maybe more than any other chapter, does chapter 2 answer the question that we are seeking to address in this first 11 chapters, in this first portion of our Genesis series? The question of provenance, where did we come from and why are we here? It's the question of our origin. And here we begin to learn of God's created intention for mankind 
by the way he created us. And what I want us to see today is that God created man as his steward on the earth and blessed him to thrive for his glory. God created man as his steward on the earth and blessed him to thrive for his glory. Now, when we reach the end of verse 3 of Genesis chapter 2, it's really the conclusion of chapter 1. I know that's confusing, but nonetheless, the story of Genesis 1 and of creation is complete at the end of chapter 2, verse 3. And then verse 4 begins with one of 10 key headings throughout the book of Genesis by which the writer organizes the whole writing. He says this, these are the generations of, and he begins with the heavens and the earth. Ten times we'll see that throughout the book of Genesis. And each time he's directing our attention to kind of a a new thrust that we will look forward towards. And so instead of looking backwards, he's saying, okay, we've talked about that. Now let's look at the next phase of what God is doing. And so in verse 4, he turns our attention with this first toledote or the generations of, and he says, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth. He's not talking about the heavens and the earth in the sense of how God created them yet again, but rather in their creation and from their production, where did they lead us? What did they produce? That's what these headings do. They cause us to look forward towards what the story will lead us to. And where does the story lead us to? In verse 4, we'll look at the second half because he says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth in the day that the Lord God created the earth and the heavens. He turns those words, and that's instructional for us. It's critical for us to understand because what he's wanting to do is the, he's wanting to direct our attention more intently at what was done in God's creation on the earth. Now, if you remember from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, God starts in eternity and then the cosmos. And from the cosmos, he dials in. And in days 1, 2, and 3, he goes from the cosmos of the stratosphere to uh, the atmosphere. And then he comes back in days 4, 5, and 6, and he moves, from the atmosphere, uh, he moves from the stratosphere to the atmosphere to the environment and begins to create a habitable place. Well, he's continuing to zoom in, if you will, and direct our attention. Now to the central focus of what has taken place on the earth with the creation of these creatures, if you will. What took place within creation? I say all that to say this. Do not be mistaken that Genesis 2-4 does not begin a second account or an additional account or another account of creation. But rather, we are zooming in to see with greater detail and greater understanding as God reveals himself to us what it is that he has accomplished on day six in the second half in the creation of man. There's another important shift that occurs here as well. Go back to verse 4. In that second part of verse 4, he says, In the day that the Lord God created the earth and the heavens. We learn something about God here that we've never known before in the first 
chapter of Genesis, and it is simply this. Whereas Genesis 1 and the creation of all things refers to God as Elohim, now for the first time he introduces this new section as Yahweh Elohim. The title for God Elohim is the grand majestic title, God as creator. He is the transcendent one that is beyond us, that is uh, uh, beyond our capacity and, and imagination or conceivability in every way. But Yahweh is altogether something different. For Yahweh is the name that will be used throughout the Old Testament to address the covenant-making God. In other words, Yahweh is the God who comes near to his people enters into covenant with them or relationship with them and begins to interact with them. You see, in this next section of Scripture, what the writer is wanting to reveal to us is that God is not only Elohim, the transcendent, all-powerful one, but he is all, uh, all, also Yahweh, the relational God who is near to and for his people. Friends, creation from the very beginning demonstrates this, that God is creator. God is the covenant-making God who loves us. And so what are we going to see in this chapter? Well, in chapter 2, God is going to turn our attention to see how we were made and why we are here. I want us to look throughout this chapter at four creational distinctives, four creational distinctives that reveal how God created all things in order for them to thrive for his glory. Now today we're only going to look at three and next week we'll pick up on the fourth one. But distinctive number one, beginning in verse five of chapter two, tells us of the atom of creation. That's A-D-A-M, not A-T-O-M. We're done with the scientific stuff on that part, okay? I've said all I know to say about it, and that was very little and pretty much absolutely nothing. Adam, you see, we're not just talking about an individual, but in creativity's sake, Adam's first name is also the general title for mankind or people. And so when I say the atom of mankind or of creation, I'm talking about the creation of people, how God created us, man. And it tells us this in verse 5, that though the earth was formed and everything was present and in place, it basically remained barren, like a wilderness, a lot of potential, but nothing kinetic yet. See, I'm just throwing these science illustrations out like crazy this morning. Though the state of the earth was not fully functioning, and it tells us why. It tells us that the state of the earth will not become fully functioning until man is put on the earth to work the ground and until God sends the rain to cause it. So man's going to crack open the earth and God's going to fill it with rain. And that's how the earth will come to bring plenty and to produce what God designed for it to produce. It's interesting in that little uh, 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 um, portion of scripture there, parenthesis, excuse me. In that little parenthesis, we see there that from the very beginning, God's purpose was for this relationship with man on the earth. 
that he put man on the earth for a specific purpose to have relationship with him. And in that relationship, for there to be a partnership for the full cultivation and production upon the earth. You see, the role of human beings is to serve the land turning it into that which can support life. And then God's role is to provide the rain. And these two roles of humanity and God are the most fundamental facts of our existence, one commentator tells us. I remember being in small towns in some of the churches that I served in that were more agricultural in nature. And you could go to the local uh, uh, convenience store, and there in the convenience store would be some, some uh, booths or tables, and around those tables would be many of the local farmers by mid-morning, and they would be sipping on a cup of coffee, and you know what they were talking about? Rain. In one of two ways. Is it ever going to rain? Man, we need the rain. Or they were saying, is it ever going to quit raining? Man, we need it to stop raining. I mean, there was no in-between. It was one or the other. Why? Because maybe more than sometimes we are cognizantly aware of on a moment-by-moment basis in our life, those who are fully dependent upon the partnership between God and man for the work of the earth like that understand it. Doesn't mean that we are dismissed from it, but they're more fully aware of it. God's design for the operations on the earth was to work with his creation, to work with man in the production. And just as Genesis 1:27 then showed us how it was that, that, that God, or rather what God created, that he created man in his image and in his likeness. So we see a little more about that today, not only what he created, but how he did that. He did it by forming man from the dust of the ground and then breathing his own breath, his own being into him to bring him alive. Look at these two words that describe how it is that God created us when he created us. First of all, that word formed. Formed. This shows us God's created intention for man. That, that the very way that he formed us gives an intentionality, it gives a design that no other part of creation had. And he designed us to be his stewards on the earth. Why? Because the role that he gave to us on the earth in partnership with his own work in creation was to resemble the very work he had done in creation. And therefore, we were to steward it, to cultivate it, we'll see in just a moment, and to bring production from it. God's created intention for man is revealed as he formed us for God's purpose on the earth by the very design with which he gave to us. The second word is breathe. That, that he formed this man and then he did something with man he did with no other part of creation. He breathed his own breath into him. This is a very intimate uh, uh, expression that he's doing here. And, and when God created, he not only formed the man as his representative to steward his work on earth, but he inspired him, if you will, with his very being in order to enable him to do that. You, you see this partnership with God. 
that, that, that God breathes his breath into us. And, and, and as one commentator said, that breath does more than just bring animation to man. It brings spiritual understanding, the depth of life. It brings a functioning conscience that we can receive the signals from God and, and know what he is saying to us by the very conscience of our life. It brings to us moral capacity to know the difference between right and the difference between wrong. It granted to human beings by the virtue of his inbreathing an aspect of his own being created by being formed and breathed into God's created intention is that we were formed as his steward. God's created inspiration is that he breathed his own being into us for partnership with us. And so let's put all of this together in verses 4 through 7. We have a new name for God. It is a name that reveals and, and introduces to us that he is the covenant maker. He is a God who intends to have relationship with his creation. That's what the name represents. And then he forms a part of his creation, not only in his image and likeness, for, but for a specific purpose by design and for an inspiration to represent and model. Friends, God's divine purpose and glory begins with his highest creation in people to show our place and our priority in creation. Listen to me. This is important. This is foundational to everything for our life. We are created for God. It's not just something that we can accessorize our life with. It is fundamental to the very way and the reason for which we are here. The way in which we live in this world should bear a distinct glory to God. Hear me, friends. When anything or anyone else receives any amount of glory from your life, including you, you are living counter to the very purpose for which God created you. I want you to let that sink in for a moment and consider the ramifications of this. When anything or anyone, including you, receives any amount of glory from your life, you are living counter to the very purpose for which God formed you, breathed his being into you, and placed you here for his purpose. When you live counter to God's design and purpose for your life, you forsake the fulfillment and the meaning that you were designed to thrive in and for which you long. What does that tell us? Well, at the very least, it says to us, when we are discontent in life, unfulfilled, when things that once brought us joy and pleasure no longer bring us that joy and pleasure, when everything on the surface seems to be as it has always been and satisfied, we must ask ourselves, there must be something going on at a deeper level. You go, well, how do I know if there's glory being stolen from my life that's not going to God? Well, glory has inherent attributes that it produces within us. 
The first one is gratitude to God for all things. The other is a deeper sense of his presence by his love for you. An all-encompassing contentment through his love, his provision for you, his joy evermore filling you. When those things begin to wane, what you can be confident of is this, that there is a glory leak somewhere. And in ever so subtle ways, you may be pulling it for yourself or you may be offering it for someone or something else. Be careful, friends, because God created man by his design for him. You can run from this as long as you want, but you can't change it. It's inherent to the very fiber of your being. However many layers and however complex we may be, emotional, spiritual, psychological, whatever all the ologicals and isms are that can describe us, it's all part of our being that God created, and it was all created for him to serve him as his steward in creation. That's the first distinctive we see. It's the Adam of creation. The second distinctive that I want you to see in verses 8 through 14 is the abundance of provision. Look at this. Look at the abundance of provision. God planted the first garden, verse 8. And that garden was in Eden, but it wasn't the whole of Eden. Now, sometimes we think of Eden as just being a garden, right? So it's uh, geographically pretty small, isolated. But and as a matter of fact, Eden was a place and there was a garden within Eden. That's what we're being told here. And that garden serves some critical understandings and revelations for us. First of all, it was the first place of worship. We'll begin to learn that God came in the cool of the evening to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. That's a beautiful place. And you go, how was that worship? There were no lights. There was no music. There was nothing happening of that nature. You see, at its very essence, worship is being with God and enjoying the pleasure of his presence. That's what Adam and Eve understood. That's pure worship. And that makes it because it was the first place of worship. It was the first temple where people met with God. It's also, friends, the first picture of God with man. You see, what we learn in Genesis is we learn God's desire for us from the way things were before sin entered the picture. It was a perfect place in every way. God had made the garden. He had made it a place of abundant provision. The scriptures tell us in verse 9 that it was pleasant to the sight and good for food. It was pleasure and it was provision forevermore. That's what we understand. And it was a place in the midst of unlimited pleasure and unlimited provision where people met with God. Friends, that's a beautiful image for us. And it's a distinctive that we need to understand of how God created when he created. The garden within Eden becomes the central focus of Eden. It tells us that there were two specific trees in the garden. The tree of life 
and of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, these aren't the only two trees that we'll see. As a matter of fact, in verses 10 through 14, it tells us that Eden was just representative of the whole. As a matter of fact, it was the origin and it was the place of beginnings, but what poured out of the garden through Eden went to the horizon of our imagination and far beyond our comprehension. That the goodness and the glory, that the worth and the value and the beauty and the unimaginable richness of all of these things spread out and all of it was encompassing of God's glory. That's what it tells us when it teaches us of the four rivers. Two of the rivers we, we know really nothing about anymore other than what we have in the biblical record and the other two rivers we do know about them because they still exist. We can identify them today. But what the writer is saying to us is this description of if you follow this river out there's gold all along it. There's beautiful, valuable stones of beauty and glory. He's, he's giving us this overarching description that the perfection of the garden in Eden was not central only to one location, but as the point of origin, it was a catalyst for the glory of God that spread throughout all of creation. This is the way the whole earth was in the beginning because God created it that way. You see, the glory of Eden's garden held a central focus, but it was a point of origin, of culminating glory that spread from there throughout the whole earth. Friends, the second distinctive reminds us that God created abundant provision and, listen to me, pleasure. God's not a killjoy. He's a God that originated provision and pleasure forevermore for man in order for us to live by trust in him. You need to capture that vision because so often when we wrestle and struggle in life, the first place we turn to in our thoughts and the inclinations of our heart is to blame and accuse God. Blame and accuse God. We'll see that soon enough in the next chapter. But we know that all too well in the everyday of our life. Let's move to the third distinctive for today, though. The authority for service. Verses 15 to 17. And as we see these distinctives, it's bringing things together for us. You see, what God does is he authorizes man to serve his purposes in the world. When God created man, he placed him in a garden as his regent to rule. That's the big picture of what we understand from Genesis chapter 1. God's intention is not what we typically think of as rule, though. So he placed us there as his regent or his representatives in order to rule on the earth. When we typically think of rule, we think of the exercise of power. But what God is saying to us here is that his vision for ruling is not the exercise of power, but the idea, the idea, excuse me, of production, cultivation to produce more good and more glory. A production that would come as man works and keeps the land. That's what it tells us here in verse 15. God authorized man for service to work and to keep the earth that he might maximize the production for good and for his Glory. You see, from the very beginning, God set into motion and he placed into place 
part of his creation, a creature that would rule over it, that would propagate, that would cultivate so that more good would come from the expansive good that's already present because of the work and the partnership with which they would have for him. And God would be glorified through that. Look at this authority for service that he gives. First of all, God's authority for service begins with a commission to cultivate for more glory. A commission to cultivate. If you look at those words, work and keep, those are two critical words because they form the creational commission that God gives to people. One of the three root words for work, one of them is what you think it is, get to it, right? Taking care of business, doing the activity of work. But one of the roots from which the word works extends means to worship or obey. Listen, friends, I don't know what your Monday morning does when you begin to think about it on Sunday evening or on Friday night just after you've left. But I can tell you this, God's vision for work is not a burdensome grind. God's vision for work is an act of worship in its very being. And I want to commend this to you today. The word for keep just simply means to exercise great care over. So in the production of our work as an act of worship, there would be an ongoing keeping of that work. And this is all the commission of cultivating producing more and keeping it for glory. Inherent in our work is not only what we do, but how it is that we go about what we do because of who we do it for. Now, I'll return to this in a minute, but I want you to see for the moment that we were created to cultivate for more glory as worship to God. That the whole earth might enjoy his goodness and the production of it. Now this authority to, for service is not just about a commission to cultivate. It's also about a command to trust. And that command has a prohibition inherent within it that we see. Any tree can be eaten from except the one that is to never be eaten from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And listen, I don't want to be harsh with you this morning, but I know what you're thinking. Hmm, wonder what that tasted like. Am I right? Don't, don't answer that. Don't answer that. You will implicate yourself. You can plead the fifth in this moment, even though you are without excuse, Romans says. You are already guilty, and you know it, so don't even argue with it. This is what God is saying, but I want you to understand what's taking place here. Because so often our concept of God just hinges on the prohibition instead of the purpose that he was serving through it. It tells us that we are never to eat of the tree because when they do, they will surely die. You see, in the garden, God gives Adam ample permission. Any of the trees you can eat from, you can have them all, have them all, have them today. There'll be plenty tomorrow. And when you finish, rest yourself under one of them. Take a nap, enjoy. They're all yours. But this one, don't eat from it. You see, well, here's how we often reduce this teaching. We think it's one or the other. 
And who wants to keep driving back? You do this all the time and you can understand this because it drives you nuts. You keep driving back to the same place. You keep going to the same place to eat all the time. And about the time you get there and get seated and you order, you think, why do we come back here? We always come here. We never go anywhere else. I'm tired of eating the same thing off of the same menu all the time, right? You go, why don't we just go there? And, and, and you begin to get this idea that all God did for them was give them two options. And nobody just wants two options, but that's not the picture that Genesis paints for us. The picture that Genesis paints for us is that there were innumerable options, and any of them provided far more than ample provision and pleasure for their consumption. But it was that one that they could not get off their mind. There's just one. I'm so curious right now. What does this command mean? That's the essence of what we need to deal with today. We'll deal with the one tree in the next chapter. But the essence of what God is prohibiting here in his command, what is it? You see, it's been greatly debated and, and, and surely we don't know the full sum total of everything that it means. But but one author helps us to simplify and clarify it when he says this. The emphasis of this passage falls on the prohibition rather than the property of the tree. This is good, friends. This is good. This is critical to your conquering sin in your everyday life. The emphasis is on the prohibition more than the property of the tree. It is shown to us as forbidden. In all this, he says, the tree plays its part in the opportunity it affords rather than the quality it possesses. What's the problem? That it's present. That you said no. And maybe I want it. I want to know why you said no. He's telling us it's not about the tree. It's not about the tree at all. But rather, it's about the command of God. You see, from the very beginning, to establish his relationship with man, God provides a command because from the beginning, he wants to teach man to fully trust in him by believing his word. That's how elementary this really is, friends. God is establishing the relationship by the truthfulness and the faithfulness of his word. God's command is not about the poison of one fruit versus the sweetness of another, but rather it's about the posture of the heart to make sure that we guard our heart above all else because it is the wellspring of life. And if it is not postured in such a way to be oriented to God first and foremost, it will be prone to wonder. Don't you feel it? Don't you feel it? God's prohibition is not about denying any goodness, friends. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can apply this to any command he's given to you, whether it's in the positive or in the prohibitive. God's command is not about denying you goodness, but about commanding trust in his provision through all of his work. 
Man was created for work. Work is a gift from God, not a punishment for sin. I know some of you are going to argue with me about that, and you could offer limit, unlimited examples of your own work situation. But work is a creational command, and, and it's a function of the earth for which we were created and placed here. It's, it's inherent to the core of our being as being made in the image and likeness of God, formed and breathed and brought to life through that. Work is inherent for us. It glorifies God and it provides his good for us. And sometimes we hear that our work or what we do is not our identity, that we're human beings, not human doings. But friends, listen to me. While that holds a smidgen of truth, just a smidgen, it has more untruth inherent within it in the ways that we often carry it out. You are valuable as a person because you are created in God's image and God's likeness. God establishes your value in all of creation in Genesis 1. But Genesis 2, he begins to unpack that. The full measure of your worth and value is not comprised only in your work. But work is as essential to our identity as the image in which we are created. Think about this. What you do is not as much the issue as that what you do glorifies God through the doing of it. That's where work is essential to our identity. The first truth we learn about God in all the scriptures is what? In the beginning, God what? He worked. He worked. That he created our vocation is the principal way we pursue God's commission to cultivate in the earth. It's the reason we were put here. It's the very purpose for which he formed us and breathed his being into us. God's command, friends, shows us, though, where it is that the problem arises. And the problem arises not in the fact that we work, but in the fact that we Trust in our work. Now I'm meddling. That we, through our work, begin to place our trust in ourself in order to measure our success and establish our value. See, the problem is we begin to trust in ourselves because of our work or by or through our work. And this is the very issue that God is addressing by the prohibition of his command. That he wants us to trust in him because of his word, because we believe in him, because he's faithful to us. Not because we can provide for ourselves. The best way to understand God's prohibition rests in two stains that sin places upon us. The first sin stain is the mother of all sin. Uh, uh, John Calvin said it's pride. Finding all of our worth and sufficiency in self through our work. When we believe our work provides all that we need, we no longer have any need for God. And this cannot glorify God, nor can it produce good for others or for ourselves. We may get little snippets here and there, but they will never last and they will never satisfy. The second stain of sin is not only pride, but selfishness. Laziness from self-pity and not wanting to work. You might say the other end of the spectrum. Pride leads us to steal glory by trusting in ourselves. Self-pity steals glory by dismissing our work as just not worth it. And nothing marks work more toilsome and grinding than when we labor for glory that is other than God's. 
When we pride ourselves by finding worth only in our work, it never satisfies. But we will kill ourselves trying to make it satisfy us. When we find self pity, selfishness, to excuse our work because we become lazy in it, we are left unfulfilled. We self-loathe our accomplishment and we are able to dismiss and loathe any other accomplishments from ourselves or others. You see, that's why Paul warns us against idleness. And he even states that when a man won't work, he shouldn't feel the goodness in himself that comes only from work. He shouldn't eat. That's what Paul says. He shouldn't eat. And when that stomach starts talking to him, it might motivate him to get off his happy keister and go get something done. Work is not hard because it's work. Work is hard because we are sinful. That's what Genesis 3 will show us. God created work as a glorious joy. Sin makes work a burdensome grind. And glory through work is the principal purpose of man's function on the earth for which God created us. Friends, work does not establish our worth in God's eyes, but it does demonstrate God's created intention for us as we pursue his commission on us and as we live in obedience to his command for his glory. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. Why? Because it's his glory, not mine. It's his good that he's given to us freely. And whatever he brings to me by the labor of my hands will be my abundant good. All of our work is to be done in full dependence and trust in God. God endued man with his authority to cultivate the earth for more glory by obedience to his command. Listen, friends, God planted a garden, he placed man within it, and he met him in a place of abundant provision and pleasure. And it tells us that that garden was not just one locale, it's spread out through all the earth. What does that tell you about God? What does that tell you about God? Does it tell you that God's a killjoy? Does it tell you that God's not for you? Does it tell you that God doesn't care how you feel about your life? Does it tell you? No, it doesn't tell us any of that. It tells us that God wants good for us, that he has good for us, and that he is the giver of every good gift, the New Testament says. God formed us and he breathed life into us and he commissioned us and he commanded us to work for more glory and for more good and all as we fully trust in him for our needs. The question we must come back to is this, is our life, is my life, is your life bringing glory to God and the good that's coming to you, is it resonating from his glory or some other glory that you've given it to are you trusting God with your work, through your work? Or is your work causing you to trust more in self? Ephesians 2.10 tells us we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christian, is God receiving the glory by the way you live your life, by the way you work 
Is there anywhere today, any place in your life where you need to repent? Go, God, I've been trusting in me. I've been trusting in the things that I can do. I've been working so hard trying to make me and my family happier and trying to do good for other people. But in all of it, I've forsaken you. And I need to stop and I need to repent. And I need to stop trying to impress you with what I can do and begin to trust you for what you've said. Would you bow your head and close your eyes?